Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Equalizer podcast. It's 2023. It's our first episode of 2023. Thanks for your patience on a bit of a break here, but excited to be back. A lot has happened since last time that we were with you and we're able to chat with some things. Uh, We have two U.S. games that are in the books, first of the year in a World Cup year. It is now a World Cup year, officially. Uh, Two U.S. games in the books in New Zealand. We've got plenty happening in the National Women's Soccer League, on and off the field, really, since we last spoke. Uh, For timeliness, we will mostly speak to some of the big happenings uh, on the field, so to speak. They happen in the the draft room, in the boardrooms, but um, they will affect on the field in the year to come. And excited to bring you all that and uh, a lot more. And I'm joined this week in in our first episode of the new year by Ariana Cascone. She is a contributor to the Equalizer, Backheeled, and American Soccer Analysis. Ariana, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Of course. Um, so, so the U.S. I want to start with for timeliness matters. Um, you know, we we just wrapped this week of the U.S. heading to New Zealand. Pair of games. These were. I guess you can call them good planning. They were sort of on the books in the contracts before the U.S. got drawn into a group that will play exclusively in New Zealand and and offers a pathway that's uh, largely in New Zealand for the most part um, for the knockout stage should they progress in in the summer. And a 4-0 result uh, in the first matchup and then a 5-0 result for the U.S. in the rematch. Uh, scores, you know, like many, I mean, I'm probably anyway, I'm not so much worried about. I think performance is obviously the one here. It's January. That's traditionally a time when you see rustiness for the U.S. because the domestic league, obviously, we're in this off season, and um, typically it just happens at, at a home venue or just in a training camp if there's if there's no matches and they they gather in California. But uh, we got to see it in New Zealand as sort of a test run for the World Cup, and I, I think I want to get your uh, your thoughts on some some high level takeaways, Ariana, um, and I'll just sort of round it up for folks who are looking for the 30-second the version uh, of what happened, a 4-0 result in the opener, all four goals in that in the second half, very much um, as I think we've kind of gotten used to, a U.S. game where uh came out kind of slow, maybe flat, you'd even say, uh, in the first half, and then sorted things out at halftime, got things uh, kicked into gear in the second half with, I should say, a number of changes, and, and a big one from that first half was Taylor Korniak got the nod at the number six um, to start, and her first time there, I don't want to put too much of the criticism on her because I think she was kind of thrown into that, but I think we can largely say it didn't work. Um, we'll talk about some of that. And uh, second game, much more complete performance, uh, 5-0 for the U.S., really scoring from the start and um, just much better combination play, which which we'll also touch on, but um, just a much better game, period. And, and I know folks will point to the quality of opponent, New Zealand missing a lot of players, you know, maybe not. Uh, kind of a tier two opponent to begin with and then missing a bunch of players because it wasn't a FIFA window. But uh, that's the the roundup of sort of the high level, what you need to know. And and now we're going to go a little bit deeper. So um, Ariana, you know, I think we both know and many listening know, you know, can't go, can't get too high or too low on these games given the context. But, you know, these are the types of games where you want to see something, right? You want to see something that, that the U.S. has lacked lately or that need they need to work on or um, – you come away from these games. What is, what is maybe the the biggest talking point, positive or negative, for you that that you leave these two games with? Yeah, I think the biggest one is is sort of like what you're getting at, not getting too high or too low. 
um, recognizing that it's not really about the results here. And it's just, you know, the United States first time in New Zealand and and making that trek across the world. Um, the United States plays most of their friendlies at home, which is great, but you know, that means they're not really traveling that much. So ahead of a, ahead of a competition like the world cup that's happening in New Zealand, Australia, I think it's really great for the players to just experience that. So it's probably top of my list. Um, getting a little bit deeper after that, I think another takeaway has to do with the midfield. So, you know, we're six months out from the World Cup and Vlatko doesn't really seem to have a set in stone midfield. I guess you could say the same thing about the de- defense as well. Um, but even though he did a lot of, of lineup rotation last year, you know, through qualifying, I think he's still doing this rotation and especially in the midfield, uh, still trying to figure out that number six. And the takeaway, I guess, is that he doesn't, he just doesn't know (laughs) because the experiments (laughs) maybe aren't working, you know, and, and I agree. We don't want to, we don't want to pin everything on Taylor Korniak because I think she was really great for San Diego in the midfield for them, but she was playing higher up the field. Right. So it's not that she doesn't deserve to be, you know, in the United States midfield. I don't think that's it. I think, She's more effective when she's playing in a position that's more natural to her. Yeah, I'm. You know, I think you know the uh, agree on the number eight position for Korniak, and even that. I mean, she came from. Um, you know, she had played there before. She, she's reminded us, but you know, in college, mm-hmm. she was more of a forward. She played more advanced for for Orlando when she was there. But um, you know, I, I think Vlako Nanovsky has led us to believe that there's, or doesn't want to necessarily say that there is a set midfield, but. Um, you know, I, I think paying attention to it as we both have been, you know, we, we kind of know at least because of, you know, dictated by injury, right. Katarina Macario, we, we see for mm-hmm. that little bit of the winter and spring in 2022. And then, um, you know, even that was she a nine, was she a 10, but w- then she gets hurt with the torn ACL and she's missing for more than half of the year. So, you know, the, the Rose Lavelle, Lindsay Horan, Andy Sullivan midfield is, is clearly been the choice now is, was, has there, you know, was the Korniak experiment, the changes, even the second game, which which we can get to, mm-hmm. um, where, you know, somewhat by force, and, and I thought this was a good sort of replication of a World Cup in that you have Alex Morgan pulls out of the lineup in warmups with some in, with some muscle tightness. Lindsay Horan leaves camp after the first game to return to Lyon because she's the only in in season player, and that. Um, you know, that forces some changes and, and Ananovsky goes with, I think somewhat surprisingly, Rose Lavelle moving deeper, which is, um, you know, I think her defensive abilities are, are sometimes overlooked for, for good reason, maybe because of her, her attacking abilities. But, mm-hmm. um, she, at times she was the deepest player collecting the ball off the center backs in that second game. It, it Andy Sullivan seemed to be freed up with that. And then Ashley Sanchez, um, as the, the sort of attacking mid number 10 there in, in almost a double pivot there with, with Rose Lavelle, which I think as we've sort of all opined about the need for a double pivot and, and what it could look like and, and why it's needed. I don't think we necessarily thought, well, put Rose Lavelle back there, but um, you know, I, I think we saw some things out of Ananovsky and I just wonder if that is to me, maybe more of a testing. What are my, you know, plan B and C here rather than my plan A, because I think he's sort of shown us what, what the plan A is in that midfield. But, you know, there, there are these question marks still, right? I mean, he's still getting asked about Julie Ertz. We're still 
sort of totally unclear on what that looks like, but I think, you know, have to plan for at least as far as the World Cup. It, it doesn't seem like, I mean, in six months, she's going to go from not playing in a year and a half to to right in the mix. Um, Sam yeah, Lewis continues true. to be a huge mystery. And then and then Katarina Macario, obviously, where does she play? So, um, yeah, I think these are really good points. And, you know, it does seem like, a, you know, Sullivan is the number one potentially at the six. And maybe my reluctance to accept that is because I'm not sure that is the most or that's the best answer for the mm-hmm. for the U.S. <laughs> so who would, you, who would be your answer, you think? Yeah, I mean, it's it's totally not Julie Ertz. I think the Ertz train has left the station, sort of what you just said. I do not expect her to not play for a year and a half and then be ready for the World Cup. Um, so that he's still getting asked about Ertz kind of shocks me a little bit. Um, one player that I we didn't get to see in this window was Sam Coffey. So she, I think she deserves some minutes at the six. And she's she had a few there, I think, at the end of last year. Um, but, mm. you know, so she was in the mix. She was training, but just didn't get the nod this time. Um, and I kind of I kind of would have liked to see that because I think we know what Sullivan can do. And Sullivan is really great, can be really great at connecting lines. Um, but for me, it's kind of far and few between when she she does that really well. So there are some highlights from the end of last year that, you know, she had that long ball that, that went into the forwards and then, you know, that sequence ended in an assist in a goal or something like that. But, um, you know, I just don't know. I just don't know that that's sort of the direction I would go. I I really want to see Coffee get some minutes at the six. I think she was great for Portland, even though she played more attacking in college. Um, she kind of stepped up and was the quarterback of the Portland team. Mm-hmm. Um, and then thinking about yeah, Lavelle sitting in and playing playing deeper. There's no question that she was one of the brightest spots in the field in that second game. And I think that just speaks to Roosevelt as a player, right? Like pretty much wherever you put her, she's going to be great because she's excellent at soccer. (laughs) Um, But do you concede some of her attacking ability when she has to defend so much in a, in more of a midfield battle? Right. So I think she was able to look that good on both sides of the ball. um, Not only because she's great, but because the opponent maybe wasn't really so much of a test. Whereas if you have a midfield like that of Germany or Spain, thinking about some recent opponents, it would be really hard for Lavelle to like be getting forward as much when she's supposed to be playing the eight. Mm-hmm. So I think that's just something to keep in mind. Well, I th- that's a huge point because we talk about, you know, we collectively as a, as a people watching and we talk about starting lineups and I think we have to acknowledge something that doesn't really get acknowledged in the conversation, right? Particularly in a world cup that, you know, a, a starting 11, a first choice team um, is, by nature, certainly for a team like the U.S. where you are planning ahead and for better or worse, right? You're not a team that's mm-hmm. worried about, you know, am I going to win my first game of the World Cup like one of the co-hosts? You know, am I going to get out of the group? I mean, certainly you need to do what you need to do to get out of the group. But, you know, we can look at the 2019 World Cup for the perfect example, a similar group even maybe you could argue where, um, you know, you have two weaker opponents and then a strong opponent. And, the way that group laid out with Sweden at the third game, you know, that, that kind of was almost beneficial to the U S and, and Sweden in that, you know, mm-hmm. um, neither of them were going to that, like an opener say, where you kind of feel like you have to go win this. You you know, the rest of the group has sort of been settled, but in a world cup where you, you're trying to rotate, you're trying to rest, 
your starting group, quote unquote, is going to change. So you've got that opener against against Vietnam, um, even though, you know, it's typically, um, you know, you, you might view that as potentially the weakest opponent in the group. Uh, I think typically, especially a U.S. team, you want to start a World Cup strong. You're going to put your your first choice 11, and then maybe you typically look at the second game as a rest. In this case, I don't know. You obviously have, you know, the, the Netherlands game is is – important to sort of who's going to win the group and then potentially avoid Sweden. But um, mm-hmm. for me, I'll just to say that as we talk about um, starting lineups, you know, the last point that you made is so key that um, I think what we saw against New Zealand in the second game with, with Rose Lavelle and that double pivot is something we could look at um, that Vlachmaninovsky could be looking at as a starting option against a particular opponent now, right? Mm-hmm. That yeah. It's not going to true. be, you know, it's not going to be let's play her there, um, you know, in a semifinal potentially or or a quarterfinal or a big game, even the Netherlands game maybe. But, you know, that this is an option for us against uh, a team that is maybe weaker, maybe presents a low block or a mid block and isn't going to press us. And there's not a lot of pressure on that, you know, that holding mid area. Um, so I, I think that's what I took away. And, and honestly, my mind kept going to um, Ashley Sanchez did well, obviously, you know, a uh, uh, the injuries for me, um, the Sam Mewis answer that, that Vlakonovsky gave, which was to the degree of he really can't comment on when or if she'll be back, um, mm-hmm. which is, you know, sort of an ongoing kind of ominous answer, unfortunately. Um, you know, I, I had looked at maybe her return as, you know, do you do you go to uh, very much, you know, in a 2019 vein to a degree without Ertz, but Lavelle, Haran, Mewis, and, and Haran, Mewis working off each other behind Lavelle becomes an answer, but you know, if, if Mewis is in that state as well, and we don't know, um, you know, my mind really went to, uh, again, with respect to Ashley Sanchez, who I thought played well in it, but, you know, do you bring Macario back in at the 10, again, assuming she's healthy, ready to go, which looks like sometime in the spring, that's a short run up, but, um, and you could have Macario in front of Lavelle. We saw how successful that combination was last spring in a, in sort of the nine ten areas, um, and then you, you play that sort of Lavelle deeper, um, and, and Macario in the 10 and then, you know, Sullivan there. And that, that also keeps Morgan in the nine because that was, you know, part of the question with Macario's return. I, I don't know what you think of that. It's obviously again, dictated by opponent, but that's, that's kind of where my head was at in that second game. Yeah. I like that. I mean, I, I think your point about the U S needing to come out strong and, and thinking about their first 11, but also, you know, plan B or C for me, the that's been a big problem with the U.S. is that they're not really coming out strong. So we saw that in the first game, this you know against New Zealand, which I would assume they wanted to start the year off strong. And yes, we have to acknowledge that they have some rust in the January window, but that first half was really just not great. I think they struggled all throughout from you know all three lines. Um, granted, the defense wasn't really tested, so. If we're thinking about, and, and this is just not, that's not just in that game, right? This has been a trend, I think, under Andonofsky. It's just time to kind of say it. Like the U.S. doesn't really come out strong as consistently as they had have historically. Um, and I don't know how much of that is chalked up to injury, right? But I think once Katarina Macario is ready to come back, she's a player that I totally think needs to be slotting in to that best 11 or that first 11 rather. Um yeah, I could totally see her playing in sort of in, in in the midfield position. It would be nice to keep Alex Morgan as, you know, that center striker. 
but it, yeah. this is dependent, I think, on her form and what you're alluding to. That it's a short run up, right? I'm not. There's no doubt that if she is in form and sort of ready to go, that she's going to be great. But it can be tricky, and uh, mm-hmm. I feel like there's been a lot of like, oh, well, when Cat comes back, it's going to be <laughs> everything will be solved, right? And it's like, well, the attack you know, there's no shortage of talent in the attack and this one player is not going to come back and all of a sudden things are going to click seamlessly and, and the U.S.'s intensity is going to be there, right? It's it's every single player on the field that is having a role in that. So I try to keep that in mind when I think of these players, mm-hmm. you know, with injuries integrating back in. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think there were a couple of um, sort of newsworthy items out of Lakononovsky on this trip that was... Uh, Admittedly, a bit a bit more difficult to cover, I guess, from afar. But um, I'll give some credit to HBO Max, you know, on the uh, the coverage, their debut of of uh, a drastically different picture for U.S. fans on on how to watch games. Obviously, from from decades of ESPN to to that, um, I thought it was well produced, and particularly um, where where I'm going with this too. Two things that you know you mentioned, Ariana. The I, I thought Rose Lavelle post game after that second game on HBO max and that interview with Melissa Ortiz was she really nailed it. And, you know, somewhat crazy to think of Roosevelt as one of the true veterans on this team, given the dynamics now, but, but she is. And she said, you know, we looked better in the second game. We looked like ourselves. You think about 2019, she specifically explicitly referenced it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we jumped on teams early. We scored early. You look at that, the first six games of the 2019 World Cup, so everything except the final, they scored in the 12th minute or earlier. Some of them, you know, in the the third minute, fifth minute, um, they, they jumped on teams with a high press. Obviously, different personnel. They suffocated them, and and they never let them back into it. And and every opponent, even of the quality of Spain, France, England, was working from a deficit within you know 10 minutes, 12 minutes. So. Um, you know, that was that high pressing us team, which to your point, we've only seen in bits and pieces. And I think that's where, um, that's where we've kind of, maybe, maybe we've been fooled a little bit because they are just tinkering and they're, they're trying to see what works and what isn't. And they maybe really know, or, or Vlakononovsky really knows exactly what he's going to do in these scenarios. But, mm-hmm. you know, we've, we've only seen that in, in spurts and it's led us to believe that there's sort of this identity crisis with the U S which I, I think is a, a fair conversation to have at least and, and whether there is or not um, you know, part of that is just, we're so used to what was and, and um, you know, maybe, maybe the two of us even, I mean, I think a lot of people, we, we kind of have to get past to, to the Ertz thing, right. That you said, it's kind of wild to, to still be asked about it. I mean, it, it isn't, it isn't, but um, you know, that's what was right. And, and for what is, there's a world cup in six months. So, right, um, right. you know, and I think the other, just relatedly, like Ananovsky said, he's down to, he was asked and then he, he was surprised he did this. He he gave a general answer and then actually made it very specific that his pool of consideration for the 23 spots in the summer, um, which it's going to be 23. I don't know how heavily that's been reported, but I've been told firmly that it'll be 23, not 26, like the men. That's for another day, but um, <laughs> that he's down to 32. So you look at 24 in camp, Rapino. Smith were, were left behind O'Hara all with sort of quote unquote shorter term injury. You throw Macario into that you're at 28. Um, and then a couple of players that have floated around camp before. So, I mean, I don't, I don't think we've got a lot of surprises here in terms of, of who's, who's left for consideration. 
Yeah, I think that's true. And, and it's almost difficult to process because is it that this new national team comes out flat and isn't consistent? Is, is that like their new identity? Um, thinking about the 2019 World Cup and that stat you just said about, you know, that they scored in the first 12 minutes or, uh, you know, that quickly. Aside from this game they just played, I'm almost positive that they didn't score at all in the first half in the in the last four games, four or five games. So that is a big shift. Um, and it is kind of unsettling to think about that so close to a World Cup. I mean, we are only six months away, which is not a lot of time. Um, and of course, the, the national team has been played with injuries and that sort of thing just happens, unfortunately, in this sport. But they, the U.S. has always prided themselves on having the depth. So there's a famous quote, I think Ali Krieger, like if the, the U.S., you know, their best 11 is first in the world and their second 11 is second in the world, right? I, is that the case anymore? No, I don't think so. Um, mm-hmm. But the depth is still there, right? So for this kind of big shift to happen is, like I said, a little hard to process. It doesn't make sense to me why why the identity would be so different, why there is such a struggle to come out strong and to sort of assert assert themselves over even weaker teams like New Zealand right off the bat, um, given the caliber of players that are in the pool, mm-hmm. you know? So the, the quote that drives every other country, absolutely nuts. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh... Exactly. I mean, it kind of drives me nuts too. Like yeah. I, I, I love that confidence. Um, but you know, is it's up for debate whether the U S is still the best in the world now. I mean, mm. we're, we're going to see what's going to happen this summer. There's always some chaos, right? It's hard to tell what will happen in a world cup. But, um, you know, those, yeah. the, some European teams are really like we saw in the Euros, right? They're, right. they're doing really well now. So, well, I, I don't think on form that anybody objective could argue that they are, but I, I, um, yeah. you know, the, the arc of these teams is different, right? I mean, to your point, Euros, European teams, including England, who can probably take claim or certainly one of the teams that can take claim to that, you know, they are, they were pushing for a peak in the summer. Last mm-hmm. summer, in a, you know, they, they've kind of got to juggle this back-to-back summers, really, really three straight if you're looking at the Olympics. But the, the Euros are a big deal. The CONCACAF W Championship is a big deal for qualification. It is not, um, hey, we need to be firing on the cylinders of can we beat France, then England, then Netherlands to to win a World Cup, right? We've got to beat six of the eight teams have a shot at going to the World Cup from that. So um, I think it's... It'll be interesting, and and to your point, I mean, they they specifically did not press New Zealand in that opener, um, which is is what we were told from the broadcast anyway that they wanted to see what they looked like dropping off a bit in the mid block. So again, like you kind of sitting there, at least I am, like, okay, wh- why wouldn't you? Well, not maybe not why wouldn't you? Because we were told they want to see something different, but we expect them to. Okay, New Zealand, they're missing players. You could easily press this team, put them under make them turn it over and you should score, you know, early and often. Um, and, and I think to Vlako Nanovsky's point, he knows he can do that maybe, or should do that um, mm-hmm. in a given scenario. And let's see what it looks like when it's something different. And so, so we're still in this space where we're being asked to evaluate uh, performances as if they're a world cup, but when they're really sort of these test runs. Um, so, so what, Anything else? Um, you know, I, I think we should probably touch on some positives quick. Of, of, um, for me, I thought that the, and I, I think we had talked about this or emailed about this a little bit off air. That, um, 
and, and I'm going to sort of pull this out on Equalizer too. If you, if anybody listening, um, head over to EqualizerSoccer.com for a bunch of different coverage, obviously. But um, there, I thought the the I'm forgetting the term that Flacco Nanovsky used, the subgroups of players, as he calls them, where you know triangular play between three to four areas of the field. Um, I thought the left flank in particular in that second game, the Ashley Hatch opener, which was, to your point, a first-half goal finally for the U.S. Um, 13 passes led to that. The U.S. actually dropped off pressure. Trinity Rodman wins the ball, and then they twice combine on that left side um, in, in wall passes, triangles to to open up New Zealand. And, and I thought it was a very well-worked team goal. There were different examples of that in the game. And then, you know, Hatch scoring it, um, you know, I think her first start in six months since that CONCACAF W championship, I thought it was pretty clear that she had, had dropped in the depth chart, which was already a very thin number nine depth chart. It was really Morgan and me, myself and I of Morgan on that number nine chart. And then <laughs> when she was missing, it was Sophia Smith moved in from the wing. I think that sent a pretty clear message on that, that chart. Sophia Smith, not on the trip. Morgan pulls out early, huge opportunity all of a sudden for Hatch. I thought she took it well. She had the goal, obviously. Um, she did have a, a pretty big miss uh, at the start of the second half, as far as opportunities go, but you know, um, more so than, than previous opportunities. I thought she found the game um, even off of the, you know, away from goal. Um, so I thought that was a positive. Anything else you take away or, or specific player or, um, you know, area of the field that, that you were, you thought was encouraging at least for the six months ahead? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think Trinity Rodman really stood out to me in the first game. She, I think she changed the game. I think she had two assists. I'm pretty sure in that first game and, you know, they were both crosses. The United States loves to cross, and I have some thoughts about that. Um, <laughs> but those ended up being, well, in general, I think they might be crossing a little bit too much. Um, I, I get when I'm watching and there's just endless kind of undirected, just, oh, I don't want to say useless, but kind of useless crosses <laughs> to the box where there's not a, you know, there's no one getting on the end of it. Uh, sort of like you do the same thing over and over again and you expect a different result. That's, kind of how I interpret that. But, um, you know, that aside, I think the crossing was working, you know, in the, given the changes that the U S made in that first game. And, and even if, even if I think the changes came a little bit late, right. I think that the overall positive was that, you know, the adapt, the, they were able to adapt and then put some chances away. And I think Trinity Robin was a big player in that. Um, and I think she made a case for herself, right. She young player, great in the league, great in the NWSL. And, and it would be really fun to see her kind of tear it up at the world cup this summer. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, you know, some, some individual, I, I, I do think um, Trinity Rodman to your point. Yeah. I thought she was one of the few bright spots against England uh, in, in the fall. And then um, I thought she did pretty well in this, this set of games. She had that assist um, or two assists, as you mentioned, and um, was was heavily involved and had the assist on the hatch goal in the end, but was even involved before that. That was the thing for me with her was she she wins the ball back in their defensive third, then gets mm-hmm. back on it, holds it up and shows a patience that I think her maybe rookie self didn't have, her pro rookie self didn't have, and and keeps the ball. They recirculate it and then eventually break down New Zealand. So um, that's, that's a good shout. Um, well, next up for the U.S., we are, I, I was thinking to myself, this is really literally a few weeks away now, which um sneaking up on us, I guess, um, She Believes Cup. We've got Canada, Brazil, and Japan across Orlando, 
uh, Nashville and Frisco, the Dallas area. Um, mm-hmm. Finally, I guess, you know, respectfully, a She Believes Cup to look forward to again <laughs> is what it will be. <laughs> so um, top top 11 opponents, three top 11 opponents for uh, what will be, a, you know, one of the few windows left to, to really see uh, this team before the World Cup in, in these FIFA windows. So um, looking forward to that. And, and we'll talk about that certainly from uh, a little bit on the ground. Um, I plan to be at least at, at some of that and we'll have some folks at that. And then uh, we'll talk about it in the aftermath and the buildup, of course, uh, here on the Equalizer podcast. Um, so a- an interesting start to the U.S. Everything's interesting with the U.S., right? They could do nothing and it'd be, it'd be interesting. But, That's an understatement. <laughs> yeah. A- an interesting start to the U.S. in a World Cup year for the U.S. in a World Cup year. And uh, we'll keep tabs on them throughout the year. And we're going to come back after the break and talk about the NWSL, get you caught up on some some of the major happenings and, and talk about them in a little bit more depth. A lot happened around the draft in the build up to it and since and um, some really interesting things ahead in this first week of preseason. At least it's allowed by the CBA. We don't know who's actually starting as of this recording or when they're starting, but uh, preseason is upon us for the NWSL. So we'll be, we will be back shortly. Uh, stick with us. Welcome back, everybody, to the Equalizer podcast. Thanks for sticking with us. We're going to talk NWSL next. But first, of course, head over to EqualizerSoccer.com slash subscribe. If you don't subscribe already, highly recommend it. You can get a full year of coverage for quite a good deal, and that'll get you all of our entire season of NWSL coverage, which uh, we continue to add to that. And then uh, all of our U.S. Women's National Team coverage. It's a World Cup year, so that will go well beyond the U.S. and into uh, many other teams, Canada in depth, and and certainly um, we will have boots on the ground at the World Cup. So your subscription will be helping to support that. So um, head over there, and you can find all sorts of, of information, of content, of features, exclusive interviews, and um, some of what you'll find there um, or will have found there in the previous weeks here. We're going to talk about in a little bit of depth uh, more analytically, more looking forward here. Uh, draft day came and went recently. It, it included a press conference with NWSL Commissioner Jessica Berman, who spoke about all sorts of things. I think some high-level stuff. Uh, we knew some of it's coming, right? VAR, some other things. Um, the, the thing that we're anticipating with, with <laughs> we are really anticipating quite a bit, is uh, where this other expansion team is going to go. We're down to... Bay Area in the San Francisco area, Boston and Tampa as the finalists to join Utah for the 2024 season. And uh, we should know that according to everybody in Philadelphia in the coming weeks, including Berman saying that publicly. So um, we will find out soon, hopefully. Um, I, I think that's probably the big one of the big line items from her press conference that day. And then came draft day, right? Uh, or that was draft day. Then came the draft at night. First, I will say first televised primetime draft. Uh, any of us who are at the inaugural NWSL college draft, what a difference that it was in a closed door room and, and, uh, um, <laughs> truly an experience that first one, but, um, some big trades on the day they started beforehand. They started a week beforehand, really, which the number one pick went from Gotham to angel city, angel city, acquiring that number one pick specifically for, uh, high schooler, uh, Alyssa Thompson, who's an LA native. She made her U.S. debut against England in the fall. She played again against Spain. So 
she was 17 at the time, one of the youngest players in quite some time, uh, six years, I believe it was since, since Pew, Mallory Pew, now Mallory Swanson. Um, and look, I mean, Angel City Valuation, they sent $250,000 um, in allocation money and Yasmeen Ryan to Gotham for the number one pick. They got Yasmeen Ryan from Portland by sending $200,000 uh, to, to Portland and a first-round draft pick. So uh, $450,000 in allocation money sent away from Angel City just to get this first pick for high schooler Alyssa Thompson, um, who they've obviously invested in with a, a multi-year contract. And, um, you know, it, I don't, we don't know what they're paying her, but that's a heck of a lot of money to be paying just to get those picks, uh, that pick, and to pick her up. But um, So that was really the big, you know, high, high-level news item a week ahead of time. And then we knew it was coming. And then we still got a ton of news on draft day, big ones that, that took place. Lynn Williams sent to Gotham from Kansas city current where she more or less never, you know, barely played. She, she never really settled into what ended up being a, um, a current team that went to the championship in 2022. She was hurt during the challenge cup, missed the entire regular season. And now she's with Gotham, a, a huge acquisition for Gotham. A lot going on in Kansas City that that I want to touch on, uh, Ariana. And then um, let, let's start with that before I ramble too much because there, there were other trades. There was a lot going on on draft day. But um, I think the highlight of draft day beyond what we already knew coming into it with Thompson and the number one pick was Lynn Williams, U.S. national team player. And I should say we really didn't mention her before, but she made her return in those U S games and even scored in her, her return. So um, I think that was just kind of a, a feel good story for her. Really interested to see how she'll fit back into that picture, but um, a big trade Gotham gets a good player, a very good player that they certainly need more of those. Kansas city sends away a player who never really got to, got to feature there. Um, what, what's your high level takeaway from that trade? Yeah, I was a little bit shocked to see this happen because Lynn Williams did play, I think, something like 80 minutes for Kansas City, and that's it. Um, and it's kind of – I kind of think about it in terms of how excited everyone was when Sam Ewis and Lynn Williams sort of went to Kansas City together ahead of last season, and then, you know, unfortunately they both got hurt. So sending Lynn Williams away kind of makes me think about what's going on with Sam Ewis too. Um not that they're a package deal, but just, you know, in terms of their, their chemistry and how they play together, but it makes sense for Gotham. I think Gotham is trying to get back on the right track. I am really excited about the moves that they are, you know, they've made. And um, in terms of Kansas city, Michelle Cooper's name, she just kind of speaks for itself. Um, She was incredible at Duke. Um, I would say I probably watched the ACC the most. And so I saw a lot of Cooper and I'm really excited to see her in the league, but Kansas city is stacking their midfield. And so if you think about, I mean, they signed Dabinia, Morgan Gatrot, uh, and Vanessa DiBernardo from, Can- uh, from Chicago, excuse me. And then Labonta, of course, is their midfielder who's sort of like their engine last year. And you think about all of those players, you know, wanting to start, they go to a club and they are like, okay, veterans of the league, you know, I'm going to start wherever I'm at. So how do you get all of those players plus Michelle Cooper (laughs) potentially um, on the field at once is where my mind's at now. Um, And then Kansas city, I think they drafted seven or eight players. So 
competition for contracts is going to be huge in preseason. Like it's going to be a very, you know, tight environment. So it'll be interesting to see who ends up on the final roster ahead of the, the regular season. Yeah. But, you know, it's, it's star studded at the moment. And so I think it's going to be interesting to see how Matt Potter and the coaching staff really, you know, gets those 11 players on the field to mesh. We've seen in the NWSL before, like one team that comes to mind where they have a star studded roster, but they sort of struggle to mesh is OL Reign. So Laura Harvey, of course, is a very talented coach and, and she has progressed the reign and they've, they've, you know, they were kind of favorites to win it all last year before they fell out in the playoffs. But um, I, I'm that's in the back of my mind, right? Like this roster is really impressive on paper. Are they going to come together on the field? Uh, I'm not sure yet. I hope so for their sake, but mm. <laughs> the jury's still out. Yeah. I mean, th- there's the roster element, which you're right. I mean, that was already, you know, a midfield that was relatively strong, right? I mean, it's a, it's a team that made the final, as I said earlier, and, and, mm-hmm. Um, you know, on the assumption that that most of it returns, um, then you add Gatra, Di Bernardo, and then Dabinia, you know, talented enough, obviously, even in, in North Carolina, we saw her kind of uh, last year, even in, in some different roles. So, you know, you could play her in, in sort of a a floating role, maybe, and, and maybe, maybe she's even just an out and out forward in this, this setup, but um, a lot of talent to get on the field. And then you made the point about contracts for rookies. I, I'm wondering how, they're paying everybody, right? I mean, that, yeah. that comes to my <laughs> mind even with the Williams trade is that, um, you know, sure. I mean, nobody's ever going to tell you some of ever, the entire story, but, you know, okay, Michelle Cooper, number two overall pick, investing in the future. You know, Williams, um, I'm not going to sit here and call Lynn Williams an older player. I mean, she's she's older than Cooper, but, you know, in that sense of relativity, sure. But, um, you know, I, I, maybe you can make that argument, but also I'm sure there's – there's a salary cap play here when you look at, I mean, I mentioned we haven't been on, on air, I guess, in a, in a few weeks here. And, you know, since in that time, Kansas City won the Dabinia lottery. And, mm-hmm. you know, much of the talk throughout that process was this was a player who could go, you know, to the, the 300000 a year sort of realm. Um, we don't, I don't have any confirmation of what that final number was with Kansas City, but, you know, significant money on top of you're probably, you know, looking at that with uh, maybe not to that degree, right? Maybe, but, but probably a seven figures for both a a Williams and a Mewis. And then you're signing some of these other veteran players who are certainly not coming in on minimum contracts. So, um, you know, I, I think that there's an element there, how, how prominent it was, I don't know, but, you know, certainly we got to a point even at the Dabinia signing where it was like, okay, how, you know, there's only so much allocation money that goes around and so much you can trade for. And um, so I, I think that's um, something that came to mind for, for Kansas city as well. And, you know, now they've got Cooper, um, you know, potentially for the longer term, but that'll be, uh, a, you know, I'm really interested to see that'll be, you know, I, I said this to will be, um, you know, barring hopefully that of course that she's healthy and everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kansas city will open that brand new stadium in 2024 with Dabinia as a centerpiece. And, and you wonder, uh, you know, certainly expected to contend for a championship in 23 after what they did in 22 and then adding to it. So, um, yeah. Another thought that I just had is, you know, thinking through the fact that this is a world cup year and Dabinho will not be there for the, I mean, presumably she'll be with Brazil. Um, and then, you know, that's still 
leaves all of those other midfielders, but I wonder if that, you know, their lineup won't, there will be some inconsistency, right? Because players will be in and out um, for that, for the world cup window. And so I think that's another thing to to mm-hmm. keep an eye on. Um, I know that the spirit, something that uh, Mark Parsons said was, you know, restructuring the spirit because they have so many national team players, right? They want to maintain some sort of consistency in their roster. So that's another thing that I'm thinking of in terms of all of these players here mm. uh, for Kansas City. And an Olympic near, year next year. So um, right. a, smaller, a smaller interruption, but one that, you know, maybe that they're planning for as well, to your point that um, you know, the NWSL, I know this was asked in that Berman press conference. I, I asked about player availability even. I mean, you know, the NWSL is advertising that they're finally taking a World Cup break, which they never really did. I mean, it's still, you know, relatively minor. I mean, I think most people, most purists, business aside, would agree that the World Cup is played. Some version of stopping the league really needs to happen for a more extended period than what essentially comes out to a weekend or so, but, um, you know, <laughs> yeah. f- for another day, all to say that between that and then obviously people think things people don't think of all of those windows ahead of time and, and all of the jockeying of when are players going to be released and how, how long are they gone for? And, you know, that is, you know, those are significant absences in the summertime for these, these clubs. So, um, so draft, I mentioned, uh, I think that the high level of it, Alyssa Thompson at number one to Angel City. Michelle Cooper, we said, to Kansas City after that big trade at number two. Emily Madrill went to Orlando Pride at number three. I think that was somewhat surprising in that there was a lot of chatter about, you know, obviously Mark Kerkorian, who she played for at FSU, was is now at Washington Spirit. They were very active on the day trying to get into that first round, which they ultimately did not. They moved up a little bit in later rounds, but um, could not get into that Madrill sweepstakes, which... I'm confident they wanted to be in um, among other teams. And then, um, you know, from there, I I think the other piece that we'll we'll shift to here, the other first round story from the draft, North Carolina courage, tie a record, as they noted. Uh, I don't think they noted the irony of there's, there's an irony in not noting what the record that they tied is four first round picks, which is what the flash did uh, eight years ago now. And, the flash obviously became the courage. So there, there's some big changes happening in North Carolina. And um, I don't think we have a full picture of it yet, but we're going to try to assess where things are at. And Dabinia obviously leaving is the biggest of them. And then the most recent trade, Merritt Mathias swapped to Angel City in exchange player for player for Tyler Lucy. And then you have these four first round draft picks and, and on draft day, um, one of these picks that came to be the courage for the courage was a draft day trade with the Houston Dash that sent Dana Ordonez to the Houston Dash, which, um, you know, look, uh, these are two huge losses for for North Carolina, right? I mean, Ordonez and Dabinia, you look at the courage in 2022, very inconsistent, right? But that's 23 goals, 23 of their goals in 2022. Hopefully I'm not confusing anybody that, that have now exited in uh, through free agency for Dabinia and the trade for, um, for, for Ordonez. That's half of the goals scored in 2022 have now exited. And, and in Ordonez, you, I mean, in Dabinia, you've got one of the best players in the world. In Ordonez, you've got one of the best young players in the league, one of the best rookies in the league last year. Um 
big losses for North Carolina. And, and, you know, I just kind of wonder too, what, what's going on there. Right. I, I mean, we don't know yet, but um, it, it doesn't seem to be, and, and there's all the context that we've talked about before. We don't need to rehash in terms of a year and a half ago with the revelations of, of Paul Riley um, that, mm-hmm. that obviously has aftermath that we can only begin to imagine for players that lived it. Um, I think the, the most recent joint investigation report revealed some players had some uncomfortable feelings about even the, the Jalen Daniels resigning and, and how that was handled. She's gone now as well. But I wonder too, if the, the courage are still trying to recover from those events in addition to whatever else is going on. But, um, even just focusing on the field of what we know, Ariana, huge losses. I mean, how do you do these four draft picks help account for them in any way? Yeah, I think that's a good question. Um, not to discount any of these young players, of course, they are deserving of being drafted and all of this, but, uh, in my opinion, not really. Like it's hard to fill that Dabinia size hole, I think, in North Carolina's midfield. Uh, and, you know, just what you said about Dabinia and Ordonez combining for 23 of their goals. Like, I think they were a huge reason why North Carolina was able to club out of the bottom of the table last year and almost make the playoffs. Um, but of course, inconsistency was their issue. And it's, it's interesting thinking back to the beginning of last season because everybody sort of thought, I think, that North Carolina was going to have a rebuilding year. And then they won the Challenge Cup and it was like, oh, okay. Even though, you know, the, the dynasty sort of disbanded, the courage still won another trophy. Okay. And then, you know, things kind of took a downward turn and, and they went to be last place. And then, like I said, they started to come back up a little bit, but, I think now that Ordonez has left, uh, you know, after Dabinia, Dabinia leaving via free agency is kind of exciting. Like, I think she should be paid what she's worth. And if it wasn't happening in North Carolina, I'm glad that, you know, she is, she found that in Kansas City. That's awesome. And it's really great for NWSL viewers that we get to keep watching Dabinia. So I'm excited about that. But in terms of Ordonez, uh, it's kind of a red flag that this young player drafted to North Carolina is requesting a trade after a year, after having an amazing rookie season, right? It's not like she rode the bench. She like went out there and broke records and, and really made a big difference. And of course, I think it's, it's, I guess it's nice that the courage are, uh, you know, being flexible and, and making players wishes kind of come true. But at the same time, you know, what would have made her stay? Was it more money? Okay. Then, renegotiate a contract like (laughs) like you need to have some sort of core that you're hanging on to very very tightly if you want to compete um and i just don't know i don't know that that's happening in north carolina and Mm. and like you said i imagine i imagine that maybe things are happening off the field or, or just something something else is going on that we're not privy to um you know, they're making those international signings, so they signed another young Danish forward. Uh, I don't know much about them, admittedly. I'm, I'm, I'm excited to sort of watch and, and learn. But sending Merritt Mathias to Angel City for Tyler Lucy, this this was a trade that kind of also confused me a bit because, you know, of course, now losing Dabinia and Ordonez, I don't know if North Carolina is going to be an attacking superpower this year. But last year, they were. You know, they scored, I think, the second most goals behind Portland or something like that. And 
they really struggled with their defense. And I don't know that they are really addressing those defensive shortcomings at all because their draft picks were forwards. I mean, they drafted Sidney Collins, who's listed as a defender, but, um, you know, then they send away Merritt Mathias, who has been one of their fullbacks, like a consistent option other than when she was injured last year. Yeah. So I'm just left kind of scratching my head a little bit. And, and they did, um, Shortly thereafter, or around the same time, they they signed Ryan Williams to a multi year deal. So, I, and and she got a significant amount of playing time. So, I think that's probably um, our answer at what they envision that fullback spot to be for the longer term is is mm-hmm. Ryan Williams. So, uh, but but you know, I mean, to the point of a core and and a player who's been there for a long time, relatively long time through those successful years, you know, another one that that departs. Um, you know, we'll see. I, I think you know. Sean Nahas, the head coach, I think he was pretty clear that um, at, on the ground at draft day that they didn't really want to make that trade, but eventually, you know, they did it for um, Ordonia's request that he said to the, I'm paraphrasing that they didn't come into draft day wanting to or expecting to make it. Um, it, mm-hmm. it did sound like it was something that had been in the works or at least discussed for some time. You know, Houston came to the mix zone an hour later and said that they were chasing her for months. So, um you know, and I think uh, will be it'll be interesting to see. He did get asked Nehas if if they would change style of play uh, at all, given the changes or Donia's exit, Dibinia's exit, and he kind of smirked and said, "No, no, we're the courage." Um, so, you know, that was as you said. I mean, the topic last year: does the box still work? Are they in a rebuilding year? Um, you know, maybe they will will revel in some of the. Uh, the doubts of sorts. I don't even know if they're, they're doubts. They're just question marks about, you know, what exactly the next step is, but um, it, it's kind of a similar, similar feeling this off season going into the, the next season. And maybe that challenge cup did sort of throw us off, but uh, yeah, it was, it was to you, as you said, 46 goals scored for them, half of which exactly were from those two players that have left now. And uh, that was second to Portland's 49. But the difference between Portland and North Carolina was the consistency and the defensive abilities, which were um, largely night and day for for the Thorns and the Courage, at least consistency-wise, um, yeah. in, in the games that they got into. And it showed in the end. I mean, Portland won the NWSL <laughs> championship and, uh, you know, North Carolina on the outside looking in and, and couldn't make up that very early season deficit and all the rescheduled games and everything. So um, we'll see. I mean, I, I don't know. You know, much like last year, at the moment in January, late January here, I don't look at North Carolina and say, "Here is a contender." I'm not going to, you know, playoffs are always kind of this crapshoot in this league with six, six spots. But um, you know, we'll, we'll see how it it shakes out. Um, and a different dynamic this time. The, the Challenge Cup is spread out over the entire year, so you know we won't necessarily have this sort of folly of of getting tricked into is this team a contender because they're in a Challenge Cup semi-final or final when you know i mean look at the spirit right they were in that final and you know the regular season also fell apart for them so yeah exactly uh, we'll see a very a very interesting 2023 ahead right we'll uh we'll get into a lot more of that um maybe quickly i mean you're you're probably our our uh among our our folks on equalizer the most or among the most qualified on the, the college front um, you, you wrote for us again, people, if you, if you're looking for content, equalizersoccer.com and, and ahead of the draft, Ariana wrote about players to watch, which were not only first round players, top of the draft, but potential steal picks. Um, we had 48 players drafted on draft day. 
any any player or two maybe that jumps out to you that that you'd want to name here as far as uh, a good fit a, a steal a value pick anything that sort of stood out to you um so I'm, I don't know if this is a value pick, but I think Reina Reyes going number five to Portland was a really smart move for them. Thinking about, I mean, Becky Sauerbrunn is, is one of their go-to center backs and thinking about the World Cup year and, you know, Sauerbrunn's getting older. So I think I was kind of surprised to see Portland draft a defender, but I love this pick for them. Um, I thought Reyes was really great out of the University of Alabama. Um, and they also signed Izzy Dekilla, actually, and she thinking, you know, Sophia Smith and Morgan Weaver are sort of the Portland Thorns go to attack. I think Morgan Weaver doesn't get as much attention because Sophia Smith is Sophia Smith. <laughs> but um, I think seeing those two players together, maybe when Smith is away, I'm I'm kind of excited to see that. And I think um, Dakila was drafted at number 12. So kind of lower than I anticipated, to be honest. Mm hmm. Still in the first round. So yeah, two, yeah. two first round picks for the Thorns, which is uh, maybe uh, quietly so. But a uh, first round that was very, um, I guess, lopsided in a way in terms of participation. We had four picks to the Courage, two to the Thorns, two to the cur- the Current, excuse me, the Kansas City Current, um, and then spread out a little bit more among the others. But um, so, you know, a, a few teams that obviously that got shut out of the first round for one reason or another. Washington tried to get in it, as I mentioned. Houston traded out of it for Ordonez. I think they're plenty happy with that. But, um, you know, uh, another another interesting draft. Draft day is always this this spectacle of trades, really. It's, there's always <laughs> some kind of some bombshell or two on draft day that that this league loves to uh, to pull out. So um, another another couple of those, I'd say in 2023. So um, looking forward to the year ahead. I think this was a, a good little primer on a couple major moves. And obviously as the season comes into focus, as preseason starts up here this week, really um, we will, we will dive deeper, but um, I think a, a good little way to to start the year for, uh, for NWSL here on the pod. So um, that was fun. Thanks, Ariana. Appreciate you coming yeah. on. Thank you so much. I had a great time. Yeah. Um, thank you again to our producer, Jacqueline Purdy. And uh, we will be back soon with another edition of the Equalizer podcast. Hit those uh, like buttons. Give us the five-star review on Apple. Helps us, helps the pod, um, helps others discover the pod and listen to it just like you. So I'm your host, Jeff Kasouf. We will be back again soon. Thanks for joining us.